after the service or the conclusion, we will give thanks for the kiddush, the wine, and, and the two chalot, the two loaves. And I just wanted to point out a couple of insights that someone much wiser than I pointed out, and that is that the challah, the loaves that Israel was, uh, the people of Israel were committed, commanded rather, to bring, were leavened, which is such a reminder of the fact that when we present ourselves before God, we have all kinds of leaven in it, in us. And the other, the other detail that came to mind is the reality that these are two chalot, two loaves of bread, and, and yet they represent one offering. It is such a wonderful reminder that God brings us together, Jews and Gentiles, uh, as part of his overarching purposes. And each Shabbat, as we give thanks and pray for the nation of Israel, we want also to remember that God has wonderful and awesome plans for the nations and specifically for his body, the church. And today we give thanks that God has this, these marvelous uh, creative and redemptive plans. Thank you, Lord God, for who you are. Thank you, Lord God, that you accept us, warts and all. Thank you, Lord God, that you are faithful to your people. You've been faithful to your people, Israel. You're faithful to each of us. Lord God, we bless you. Thank you, Lord God, for the amazing miracle that you bring us together, Jews and Gentiles from every background, Lord God, and that you unite us and make us one in you. We thank you, Lord God, for your faithful covenant promises. In Yeshua's name, amen. Today, we will not have a special reading since we had a special reading. Why don't we pause and ask the Lord to speak to us? Thank you, Abba Father, that you indeed do speak to us in a variety of manners. Thank you, Lord, for your presence here. Thank you, Lord God, that for each of us, you have a special word today. And so we simply pray, Lord, that your Ruach would convey your heart and your mind, and that you will give us hearts that are soft to hear and to embrace and to apply your word in Yeshua's name. Amen. When I was um, in my youth, which goes back a couple of centuries, um, I remember learning uh, French, uh, was not Canadian, yeah, it was Canadian French. There was a, uh, a maudlin poet named Baudelaire who had this awful maudlin uh, poem that went, the first line went something like, it rains in my heart like it rains in the city. 
And every so often when uh, we get these kind of spells, I'm inclined to be Baudelarian. And, uh, you know, especially for someone like me who was raised in the Tel Aviv area, my Tel Aviv genes break forth. But today, the sun broke forth as I was sitting and uh, the birds were chirping and I noticed the green um, all around and I thought, okay, Lord, this is like you saying, um, I'm still around and I'm still active and I'm still engaged, um, which, you know, you know up here, right? Right? Yes? But... Um, after two or three weeks' worth of rain, it begins to uh, get a little drippy. But in any event, Chag Sameach. By the way, you, you may, if you were here Wednesday uh, for that teaching by Joe Charnas, how many were here uh, Wednesday? That's wonderful. Um, you may remember that Joe is an Orthodox Jew who studies the New Testament intensely in Greek and has not embraced Yeshua as his Messiah yet. So we pray for that. He pointed out the fact that uh, Shavuot has a number of different names in Scripture. And I just wanted to rattle through them just to give us some background. Um, first of all, obviously, Shavuot began as Chag HaKatsir, I want to ask you to repeat all that. Uh, the festival, um, it is the second first fruit. I know that sometimes gets confusing. The first first fruit was the day after Passover when the people of Israel were commanded to bring the first and the best of the first crop in Israel at the time, which was barley, and uh, then count 49 days, 7 weeks, from which we get Chag Shavuot, uh, the Feast of Weeks. And on the 50th day, have the celebration of bringing the second first fruits, which is represented here. And by the way, we will have those um, in the back afterwards. And if you are in need significant need, you're welcome to take these vegetables. We're not going to donate them uh, outside. Uh, so Shavuot was also called Chag Bikurim, the uh, first fruits or the best. And, um, and as well, the rabbis determined, they did some interesting calculations, and I think most of us are convinced that they're probably right, that the Torah was given on Mount Sinai on that same day on Shavuot, um, the 6th of Sivan. And in the New Covenant, the New Testament is known as Pentecost, or literally the 50th day, because it was just that. And by the way, you may be aware of the fact that there's more than one reference to Pentecost in the book of Acts. Take a look sometimes and you'll find that it was celebrated more than once. Definitely more than once, but it's referred to um, during one of Paul's missionary trips. He stopped what he was doing and he hightailed it to Jerusalem in order to celebrate 
Shavuot again. So I wanted to begin with a scripture that was not read to us, and you can turn to it if you would, in Deuteronomy chapter 16, verses 9 to 12, which gives us some of the uh, initial instruction for Shavuot in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, the second law, the second Torah, chapter 16, verse 9. You must count seven weeks. You must begin to count them from the time you begin to harvest the standing grain, i.e. barley. Then you are to celebrate the festival of weeks to the Lord your God with a voluntary offering that you will bring in proportion to how he has blessed you. Now, what in English doesn't come through here very clearly is the fact that this is like a lot of things that are Jewish, both and, it was both mandatory and it was voluntary at the same time. Uh, because the Hebrew literally means uh, you, will to, you are to bring this tribute, um, which normally means tax, obviously in this case doesn't. Uh, in other words, the people of Israel were not given the latitude to say, you know, I'm having a hard a hard year. I had lots of locusts. They came and ate everything I had, and, and uh, we've had drought, so I am not going to the temple. I am not bringing first fruits to the temple. Well, no dice, not possible. Everybody in, the, in Israel was commanded to come to the temple and bring first fruits. What was voluntary then was the proportion and how it was brought. It was to be brought voluntarily, and the Hebrew there, nidvat yadcha, has the sense of how generous are you going to be with God? Are you going to say, okay, um, I have no choice I will bring first fruits. Well, let's see. Let me, let me see if I can find the scrawniest uh, uh, sheaves of grain. And, uh, okay, I have no choice, so God, here it is. Which is sometimes what we do in that we give God our leftovers. And no, I'm not pointing fingers at anybody because there are several fingers pointing at me. Combination here of both mandatory and voluntary. And that's very much typical of, of how God lays out his pattern for us. He doesn't give us the option of, yes, you can follow me if you really feel like it. Um, he, he demands, and since he is the king of kings and lord of lords, he has the right to demand that we follow him, right? You're not convinced? Yes? But how we do so has to flow from a willing heart, a generous heart. Nadava, nadav is an expression of generosity, by the way, that we find in Exodus 36. Remember, and by the way, this is every preacher's favorite passage where he talks about how the Israelites uh, were instructed to bring offerings for the tabernacle and they brought, they brought, they brought, they brought so much so that Moses had to say to them, enough already, we have too much. 
Such a wonderful curse, right? Um, so that's the idea of generosity, that God expects what we give him to come out of a generous heart. And by the way, that's what Paul has in mind in 1 Corinthians when he instructs the Corinthian believers, chapter 16, on the first day of every week, by the way, not necessarily Sunday, um, could be Shabbat evening, each of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up for this was the offering that was to be brought for the poor f- believers, poor folks in Jerusalem. Same kind of principle. Yes, you are to do it, but how you do it has to flow from a willing and a generous heart. So th- those are some of the initial guidelines that are given for the celebration of Shavuot. And I wanted to begin specifically in the section that we read earlier today um, in the uh, responsive reading, beginning in verse 1. When you have entered the land the Lord is giving you as inheritance and have taken possession and settled in it, Take some of the first fruits of all that you produce from the soil of the the land the Lord is giving you and put them in a basket. Just as we did earlier today. And um, bring it to the place the Lord your God will choose as his dwelling place. I like this. You know why I like this? Basket, not because it's very cute and clever, but because it is such a visible reminder for me that this is what God looks for from each one of us. The book of Hebrews talks about the fact that we need to bring the Lord a sacrifice of praise. This is Hebrews thirteen fifteen. And do you, did you ever wonder why we're told to bring a sacrifice of praise? Well, I believe that there are times when you, we simply don't feel like bringing an offering of praise. We get up in the morning, we have a bad hair day, it's raining, we're tired. We really don't want to praise God. We want to kvetch, complain. And so um, there are lots of times when Bringing an offering of praise is a sacrifice. And for me personally, each Shabbat when I come, I bring, I I have this visual picture in mind of bringing this basket of praise and thanksgiving. And I ask that the Lord will be merciful on me and that the little tiny minuscule basket of praise that I have that the Lord would somehow expand it. You know what I'm saying? Yes? Life there? So that's what the Israelites were to do. They were to bring it, lay it before the Lord, actually give it to the priest. The priest was was to take it and then drum roll. Lots of verbiage, declaration, why declaration? Why could the Israelite not just take the basket, give it to the priest, the priest lay it down, end of story? Why 
was there a need for all these, all this verbiage here in Deuteronomy chapter 26? Well, there, there's a reason why God sometimes requires us to verbalize things, to put them out in, in words. Um, because then we have to think and formulate and express and, and pause long enough to consider what we need to bring to God. That's the purpose of the proclamation. We have to pause and realize that God is worthy of us bringing our offerings of praise to him. In other words, it's right and proper for us to do that. And so that means that over a period of time, hopefully, bringing God our baskets of praise becomes second nature, becomes a habit. And it has been said that when you sow a thought, you reap a word, when you reap a word when you sow a word you reap an action when you reap uh, when you sow an action you reap a habit when you reap when you sow an action you reap a lifestyle Um, you understand where I'm going with that it's something that sometimes takes a while to develop and to cultivate and for some of us bringing offerings of praise to God comes naturally, it flows out of us. For many of us, it's something that we struggle with. It certainly was the case for me when I became a believer. It wasn't the case for, for Joy, my wife, who, for whom worship just flows naturally. And so for us who struggle with that, then we consciously learn to say, Lord, I want to bring an offering of praise to you. And so that is why each Shabbat, we encourage you, before you walk through the door, to pause and lay aside all the busyness, all the nuttiness, all the distractions of the week, and consciously say, Lord, I'm here to worship you. I'm not here to try and figure out what I couldn't figure out uh, earlier in the week. I'm here to worship you. Everything else is set aside. And let me switch from preaching to meddling here for just a moment Um, let me encourage you to put at the top of the list on Shabbat morning getting up early and coming to worship God at the beginning of the service worshiping God is first of all for him because it's right and proper you know he's the king of kings But worshiping God is hugely important for us. Why? Think about it. We are so programmed to be self-consumed, self-oriented. You know, I have an agenda. I have a strategy. By golly, I'm going to go do this, this, and this. And so when I'm able to do this, this, and this, I feel good, right? You're able to, at the end of the day, say, check, 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 check. Well, what happens on a day when you're sick? Or what happens on a day when it seems that Murphy's Law is magnified? 
In other words, if something can, can go wrong, something will go wrong. Well, what is your security like on that particular day? Are you feeling full of joy or are you feeling like you're ready to kick the dog and scream at, at your spouse? So worship for us causes us to stop and realize just who is in control. Just who is working the plan, who is able to accomplish in our life what is needed, and to whom we owe the praise and worship. It, it is reality check, folks. It is hugely important for us to worship. And so I know sometimes folks have the attitude, well, we're coming here to listen to the preacher. Well, Lord have mercy on you. Because you're missing the best part of the service. Because hopefully the one you need to listen to is not the preacher but God Almighty. And he wants to speak to you from the moment you walk in the door. In fact, before you walk in the door. And so if you consider worship in music and the Torah service to be, eh, you know, something that is really minimal, let me challenge you here to reconsider that and, and sit down with the Almighty and say, well, is that really what I need to do? And I know Shabbat morning demographically is absolutely the worst possible time for people to come to, to a service. You work hard all week, you're exhausted, and on... Saturday morning, you want to sleep in or the kids are difficult or the wife is cranky or the husband is cranky or the dogs are screaming, etc., etc. Each one of us can come up with a list of challenges and difficulties that we can list that justify why it is not possible for us to, to come and be here to worship the Lord. So I'm not pointing finger at anybody. I just wanted to encourage, to urge you to simply say, Lord, I want to worship you. I want each Shabbat to bring this basket of praise. And hopefully more than each Shabbat. But at least each Shabbat I want to worship you. And I don't know what to do about all these distractions, but you are greater than all of these distractions. You know, all the hindrances. And so I simply say, Lord, would you please go before me and bulldoze all the distractions so that I can come and be undistracted and focus on you and worship you and then receive whatever it is that you have for me to receive on that particular day. So that was the purpose of the Israelites coming and worshiping God. And by the way, when they, that first time when they went through the ceremony, uh, do you remember where the people of Israel were at that point? They were on the heights of Moab, overlooking Canaan. They have just spent 40 years going around and around and around and around and around in the desert. And... Um, not a particularly fruitful land. And here God is saying to them, when you come into the land 
and you get all, all these wonderful fruits and vegetables, in order for them to hear that and get their arms around that, that required a, a serious element of faith. They had to be able to say, at some point, God is going to take us across the Jordan River into the land of Canaan. He's going to deal with those nasty Canaanites, and he's going to see to it that we are settled and we are able to cultivate the land and produce crops and vegetables. There are times, folks, when God puts things before us that seem to be way beyond our reach, that seem way undoable for us. That's when you know that you have a vision from God. Because if, if you have some kind of strategy, some kind of a vision that you're convinced you can do it, then that's not a vision from God. It's your vision. It may be a wonderful vision, but it's not a vision from God. If it's a vision from God, it has to be way beyond you so that you realize if it's going to happen, it's something God has to make it happen. And that's what God is saying to the Israelites here. You will enter into the land. You will produce good fruit. And you will take this, the, first, the best and first fruits and you will bring it to honor me and to worship me. Obviously, God doesn't need the, uh, the carrots and the bananas. It's an expression of thanksgiving. God, you somehow brought us through the desert. You somehow brought us into, the, into this land. You somehow blessed us so that we do have crops, and I'm going to honor you. And we forget, folks, because... We're typical Americans or whatever nationality we're here from. Human nature is, God, what have you done for me lately? And we are forgetful. And God warned the nation of Israel against being forgetful. Over and over again in the book of Deuteronomy it says, when you have come into the land and when the land produces and when you've built houses and you have... Uh, cattle and so on, and you're feeling good, fat, and sassy, don't forget your God. Do not forget your God. And so Shavuot for us, as well as the other Moadim, as far as the other festivals, are simply times that force us to stop and, and say, God, if it weren't for you, I would really be a hurting unit right about now. And you somehow have brought me through, and I want to stop and say thank you. By the way, that's something I do with my grandson. You know, he, he's, he is uh, a wonderful boy, but he's a kvetcher. He likes to complain. And so um, I've tried to get him into the habit of, okay, Isaiah, what good things happened today? It was awful. It was awful. It was awful. One good thing. Yes, okay, Grandpa, one good thing. Okay, say thank you to the Lord. And he is beginning to get that. Those are habits, folks. They're habits just like our learning to bring offerings of praise to the Lord are habits. So the Israelite stands here and he makes this proclamation. My father was a wandering Aramean. And the Hebrew here is a, is a little different. 
it can give you the sense of my father was um, was about to lose it. He was about to be destroyed. Oved has a sense of his life was hanging by a thread. Now, who is he referring to, Jacob or, or possibly Abraham? In either case, the patriarchs were wanderers. That's why it's translated as wandering Aramean. But the point is, they lived in countries where they were... Um, where they were foreigners, and it was God's grace for them that, that preserved them. And so the message in this proclamation from verses 5 to 9 is simply this. At each stage of Israel's history, God was actively involved, powerfully involved in, in the life of the nation from the very beginning to the very uh, later stages and obviously when we think about Egypt we think about the ten plagues we think about the exodus and the power of God and, and so we get that however our implication is that for 400 years when the people of Israel were in Egypt uh, God was in the Bahamas somewhere he was taking a vacation and and he was totally oblivious to what was going on with the people of Israel. I don't know about you. I have a basic problem with that. Doesn't fit what what I see of of who God is in Scripture. Well, why not? Simply because when Israel, when the patriarchal family came in, into the land, there were all of seventy or so of them. At the end of their, their bondage, their oppression, there were several million of them. Well, all of that happened while the Israelites were under severe bondage, severe oppression. The word for oppression here is, is uh, repeated a number of times. In verse 5, um, at the end of, of the verse... My father went down to Egypt. He was very tiny. Very, very, very few people lived there, became a great nation, powerful and numerous. If you go back to Exodus, what you'll see is that there was a direct relationship between the amount of oppression that the Israelites experienced and the amount of growth that they experienced. In fact, it, it, it is given almost, if you are... A, a scientific mathematical type, you'll see this as a proportion. The more the Israelites were oppressed, the more they grew. What does that tell you? It tells you simply that God was not surprised by their suffering. In fact, he led them into this. Not that he made them suffer, but he led them into this to show that he could fulfill his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in spite of the bondage. Now, what does that tell you, folks? It tells you that our suffering, our trials, our tribulations provide a stage upon which God demonstrates his ability and his loving care for us. 
Not normally what we think about, because when we think of difficulties and trials, we have the foolish impression that God is hiding somewhere and that we are basically uh, forced to swim in a deep end and try to figure things out and fix things out on our own, that God is not engaged. That's really problematic, isn't it? It implies that God is a fair-weather friend. I don't see that in Scripture. In fact, I see anything but that God is engaged with us through the difficult times. Verse 7 of this chapter, Then we cried out to the Lord, the God of our fathers. By the way, as you may know, the Hebrew there is not one of these nice, polite um, complaining. This is, And we cried out, yelled, screamed. If you go back to Exodus chapter 2, verse 23, you see that there are four different Hebrew words that are used to convey the crying out that goes from a, a one of these passive sighing oh yeah, to one of these loud screaming and anything and everything in between. And what's amazing is that God hears all of that. God hears all of that. God heard our voice and saw our misery. He heard and he saw. Now this is obviously anthropomorphic kind of language. It's human language because God knew all of that from beginning to end. He wasn't lacking information. His, his knowledge was not deficient. This is really human language to convey the fact that God heard our screaming and knew that according to his calendar, it was time to kick into action. Now, part of what we have to remember, according to what Scripture tells us, is that God is always act active. We don't see it because a lot of times his actions are behind, behind the curtain. They're invisible to us. What scripture in Ephesians refers to as the heavenlies. But God is very much engaged and active and working. And then in his good time, he shifts into the visible so that we can see what he's doing and experience his blessing and his deliverance. Verse 8, The Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand, with an outstretched arm, with great terror, miraculous signs and wonders. Do you get the sense here that it's just piling on the language? God worked and God worked and God worked and God did this, these awesome things. Why? To get everybody's attention to get the Israelites' attention, but also to get the Egyptians' attention. If you go back to Exodus, you'll see that there are a number of times that it states that God did such and such, and he stated, I will do this so that the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. What does that tell you? It tells you simply that God was not indifferent to the sufferings of the Egyptians. He wanted to see them come 
to know him, which is what we know, the heart of God throughout Scripture. And we know that somehow what happened in Exodus eventually made its way to Canaan into the, into the mind and heart of this Canaanite prostitute named Rahab who said, we heard about all this stuff in Egypt. So God did his action, but his action was not designed to deliver Israel from Egypt. It was designed to deliver them not only from, but to. And that's a huge point that we need to, to park on because we often, when we are in difficult circumstances, all we see is, is our struggles. And we say, God, I'm having a hard time. Would you pull me out of this mess that I'm in? All we can see is the mess, and, and we somehow hope, wish, and sometimes pray in faith that God will bring us out. Out into, into what? Into a vacuum? Into a nothingness? An nirvana? No. God brings us out from something to something. He frees us from something in order to be free to do something positive. In this case, he brought the children of Israel from bondage in Egypt to a land flowing with milk and honey. And you know, for us who follow Yeshua, we have no sense of reality of what God has for us. We're so often consumed with our life as it is that we have absolutely no clue what God might want to do with us. Have no vision. And so we often just depend, uh, cry out to God that he will pull us out of the fire and do what with us? It always has to be from something to something. And Yeshua gives us the answer. John 15, 16, you do not choose me, choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. In other words, bondage and difficulty and struggle and God bringing us out and redeeming us is just part of the equation. We have to be able to see past it and recognize the fact that God has productive plans for each one of us. Each one of us has been gifted by God, has been given a calling. And I know sometimes people look at me when I say that as if I'm speaking some uh, obscure uh, dialect of Chinese. But that's what the Word of God says, folks. That you and I are His agents, His ambassadors, His agents for change and redemption in this, in this broken world. And we're so consumed with the government, we're so consumed with ISIS, we're so consumed with health issues, with relationship issues, that we can't see beyond that and above that. We're so much on the bunny level 
that we are not up on the eagle level, which is where Scripture calls on us to be. Those who depend on the Lord, who wait on the Lord, will renew their strength. Literally, they will exchange their strength. They will mount up with wings as eagles. Why? So they can have God's perspective. And that's what we need, folks. It's not just to say, God, get me out of Egypt, but get Egypt out of me so that I can do what it is you've got for me to do. And yes, there are many times when the word of God comes to us, when we are on the heights of Moab, we've just spent years or, t- or a significant amount of time going around and around and around and around and around in the desert. And that's all we can see. We're convinced that that will be the way our life will play out. And I, I am, I, if, if that is how you feel today, I urge you to reconsider reality as God sees reality, to get a new pair of glasses, to see your life from God's perspective. Because he's not interested in you being in Egypt. He's not interested in you being in the desert. He wants you to be in the good land, being productive, bearing good fruit for him. His kind of fruit. And so here the Israelites were came, they brought their offering, they laid it, they gave it to the priest, the priest laid it down, and then he proceeded to give this spiel in a sense that basically said, God has been engaged with us at each stage of the way, at each part of this walk. And he's not done. And he's not done. And yes, folks, reality is all of us struggle with that. All of us struggle with that. You know, there are days when you don't feel particularly glorious. You don't feel particularly um, as if you are up there with the eagles. You feel like you're down with the bunnies. But there are choices that we have to make, folks. Paul states it as follows. As you have received Yeshua the Messiah as Lord, continue to live in him. Rooted and built up in him. Strengthened in the faith. Overflowing with thankfulness. Well, what does that mean? Well, how did you come into the kingdom? How did you enter into a relationship with God? And by the way, if you haven't, if you have never experienced relationship with God let me encourage you today to do that because God is eager and waiting for each one of us we receive we learn to respond to God by faith at each stage of our life and yes there are times when Faith is much simpler, much easier than others. 
But in either case, we worship God. We learn to see who He is. We learn to recognize reality from His perspective. And then we put our noses in, we point our noses towards Him and take one step and continue to walk by faith. And there are times it has to reflect. It has to begin with the thought. It has to continue with words where we state, this is my reality. And then we take actions based on that. And then we respond to God based on what he has done for us. The Lord isn't looking for us to have, to give these ridiculously heroic expressions of faith that we don't have to respond based on what he has done for us, what he's given us. And you come and you worship the Lord. And by the way, the Hebrew word for worship literally has to do with prostrate yourself before the Lord. Verse 11 and you and the Levites and the aliens among you shall rejoice in all the good things the Lord God has given to you and to your household. The word, the command to rejoice appears over and over again in the instructions for the celebration of the festivals. Why? Well, think of it. You can do things for God with a sourpuss attitude. We all do that. You know what I'm saying? You feel like if you don't do that, well, God will come down on you like a ton of bricks and make your life miserable. So you say, okay, I have no choice. Or at some point you realize that you have a rotten attitude and you repent, you ask God's forgiveness for that, and say, God, give me the joy of your spirit, the joy of your ruach. Because I want to celebrate joyfully. For some of us, it's a real steep learning curve. I would say probably for most of us, all of us. So we say, God, I don't have the joy. Please give me the joy. I want to do things joyfully, thankfully, because that pleases you. And that's what we do. That's what Shavuot is about, folks. This mile marker in our life where we pause and say, God, you've walked with me. You've seen when I was struggling, wandering around, knocking around. You've, you've seen me when I was in Egypt. You've seen me when I was in the desert, and you brought me. And I want to give you thanks. So I want to ask that we do that after we pray and as we stand and worship the Lord. I just simply want to say, take a moment and say, Lord, thank you for all that you have done for me. Just bring him this basket of praise and say, thank you, Lord. Thank you for what you have done. Thank you for what you have in store for me. Father God, we pray for the needed vision that we all lack. Pray, Lord God, 
for eyes of faith. We thank you, Lord God, for who you are, for your faithfulness. Thank you, Lord, that you're consistent. You're faithful. You cannot deny yourself, especially during the times when we are faithless. Lord, I pray for each of us that your ruach, your spirit, would stir within us appreciation and gratitude for all that you have done in our life. How you have walked with us through all the seasons. And we pray, Lord God, for the needed measure of faith to see, Lord God, what it is that you have in store for us and to pursue it with zeal, with chutzpah, Lord, holy chutzpah. Lord God, to press forward for what you have in mind for us. Receive much honor and glory with us today, Lord, in Yeshua's name. Amen.